Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Life app and Sustainable Life podcast. (laughs) My name is Em and I'm the founder of this app and host of this podcast. The Sustainable Life app connects you with eco-conscious businesses and brands in your area. Download the free app on Apple and Android today. Today's interview is a very unique one and I felt the need to do this video introduction for those of you using the app because this interview is also a very long one, but well worth it. And for those of you on the podcast needing some context, when you use the Sustainable Life app, certain businesses and brands have the option of doing a CEO founder interview with me, where they kind of share the who, what, when, where, why behind their brand or their business, why it was created, who they are, all that fun stuff. It's a really great addition to the app. So I highly suggest you download the app and you take full advantage of learning about all of the businesses on it, all the sustainable businesses and brands on it. (laughs) So today we're going to meet Edward and Roja, two very passionate restaurant and catering entrepreneurs who have just started a wonderful organic vegan business called True Flavors in Kelowna, BC, Canada. So I'm going to be very frank with you. For those of you just looking to learn about the restaurant, the vision behind the restaurant, how they made it happen, I encourage you to shuffle to approximately the one hour mark of this interview and listen from then on. But for those of you who love love stories and also love hearing um, about people who have overcome multiple adversities in life, including but not limited to severe alcoholism, drug addiction, and so much more, then I suggest you listen to this entire interview. So without further ado, let's get started. I was born in 1991 in Russia and during the collapse of the Soviet Union. So obviously it was a very dark time and a lot of children were being put up for adoption right back then. So I was one of the children that was uh, grateful enough to uh, be adopted to Canada actually. So I left Russia, came to Toronto and Hamilton for the first few years of my life. I gained Canadian citizenship and then I actually grew up in Dublin, Ireland. So, you know, uh, my parents were doctors, very well raised, very well educated, you know, great parents. Uh, my mother and father, German and Emer Malone. And uh, we, yeah, they just wanted what was best for me my whole life. I went to you know, all guys Catholic Christian school. I played rugby for the starting team. I played tennis and badminton for my country at one stage. I did a lot of interprovincial stuff, a lot of inter-school stuff. And I wasn't a grade A student, but I was I was decent in school. I wasn't, uh, I definitely wasn't held back by anything. And then about the age of 10, 11 is where everything drastically changed for me. So 10 years old is where everything kind of went completely upside down almost, where I was starting to get a bit depressed. I was starting to get bullied. And when I was 11 years old, I actually took to drugs right away. So I started doing um, cocaine at the age of about 11, 12 years old. Is this while you were in Dublin or while you were in in Cologne at this stage? Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was... Um, I was, yeah, I was about 11 years old, uh, depressed, upset with my life, had just found out about my adoption. So I took it completely the wrong way, had no idea that I was adopted up until about the age of 11, only until I had to ask myself because I heard it in school. So I, I had a very negative emphasis on what adoption was. So 
when when that came to be, I uh, started using serious drugs and smoking cigarettes right away, and that took me, you know, uh, tw 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. It took me down a dark path of addiction already, um, attempted suicides from a young age, depression, really not feeling myself because I had a loss of identity. I didn't know who I was because when I was adopted, I didn't know who my real parents were. I didn't know where I came from. I didn't really know anything. So as far as I was concerned, I was just a lost soul on this earth. And uh, what happened was... Did anyone uh, explain to you Russia and the circumstances for why you ended up becoming adopted? Like. Yes, because during the Soviet Union, when when the actual collapse was happening in 1991, because the Soviet the Soviet Union ended officially on Christmas Day of 1991, right? So what happened was because um, because the Soviet Union was collapsing, parents weren't able to take care of their children. So there was a big influx of parents wanting to get rid of their kids so they could have a better life elsewhere due to the collapse of Soviet Russia. Because if I was still in Russia right now, if I was still in Russia, I would have been conscribed to the army. I would have, uh, I would have gone through a completely different life. So I definitely would not That's be sitting in front of if I had not been adopted. And what, I don't know, is, is it fair to say that the parents wanted to give up their kids or were they just like in a very desperate situation in which they had to? Because I would say, I would say desperate. You're a parent. <laughs> like, would you, would you give up your kid just for a better life? Like, no, right? I, well, it depends, right? With, with the country going down as deep as it did and with Russia having all of the, the politics behind it, I think that people just wanted the best possible lives for their kids. So putting kids up for adoption was the best possible hope that any Russian parents had of their kid being taken and giving a better life elsewhere in a different country. That makes sense. So it was, um, yeah, it was a very, it was a very dark time for Russia, a very dark time for the world, I believe. So I, I mean, I, I don't look too much back on it now because I'm 29 years old. My daughter is turning nine this year. So that's pretty insane. And, you know, I, I, I would never go through something like that, especially living in Canada. You would never have any reason to go through that in Canada. So I'm just grateful to obviously be here, be a part of the Canadian economy and know that, you know, in Canada, you're always going to be safe because I've had a citizenship of Canada since I was about a year old. Right. When I, when I was brought from Russia, I gained Canadian citizenship instantly by getting transferred. So my, my birth certificate is Russian, but I also have a Canadian birth certificate also. That's fascinating. Cool. Yeah, but when I was changed over, when, when since I was such a young, since I was such a kid and I was still a baby, uh, they were basically just giving out citizenships and birthrights. So when I was taken from Russia, I was only nine months old. So they basically just turned me into a Canadian upon transition. That's awesome. Yeah, you. that's a really cool system. <laughs> it, great, it worked out perfectly in my case because 
I just got extremely lucky. My parents were very well raised. They were both very well educated. They had great goals in their life. They're both, my mother and father are both radiologists. My dad actually just stepped down within the last couple of years of being the Dean for Radiology in Ireland. So my father was always up there in the system. And, you know, I was always, you know, I was a young kid tagging along with him to work and stuff. So, you know, the upper, the upbringing I had from my parents due to adoption was probably 150 times better than what I would have gotten in Russia. Right. But yeah. at 11, the depression, and then you set up until 15. So that's where we left off in your story. So yeah. Oh, yeah, really, it's pretty straightforward. Like from 11 to 15, I was confused. I was lost. I didn't know where I wanted to go in my life. So of course, depression kicked in, started using drugs, started drinking from a young age. Because I was drinking at like seven years old in Ireland because it's socially acceptable there. People are still like passing you champagne on New Year's. You're going out to oh the pub. The Could you the imagine your nine-year-old? <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> unbelievable kids go out with their parents to the pubs all the time so when I was seven eight nine I was going out to the pub with my mom dad and family all night I was out till like three four in the morning sometimes at the pubs down the country in Ireland because back then it was socially acceptable to babysit your kids in the pub so it was um I don't know what to say to that so sorry have to, have to, you have to go to Ireland to get that oh my god and so from 15 uh, when I was 15, I realized that there were serious issues. I had already been in counseling in Dublin. I had already, you know, been getting bullied. I had dropped out of school by the time I was 12 years old due to not fitting in, due to getting bullied. I didn't, I didn't fit in anywhere. So I said to my father, I said, hey, I really need to get some help here. I don't know what's wrong. I need to actually look into moving potentially. And my dad said to me, well, you have a Canadian citizenship. Why don't we just send you back to Canada? And then a few days later, I was on a plane to Kelowna for the first time ever. I had no idea where I was going. I had uh, basically sent myself there. I asked my father to send me to Kelowna for troubled youth so I could be away from the negative influence in Dublin. And I thought that that would be what I needed to change my life and get it on track before it got too bad. But of course, with that being said, I came to Kelowna, spent about seven months in Venture Academy. It's a program for troubled youth that come from all over Canada, all over the world. And it was basically a foster care system that was designed in Kelowna to help children, uh, to help teenagers, young teenagers expand and help grow opposed to collapse negatively, negativity, or collapse negatively into drugs and alcohol and go down a somewhat uh, dysfunctional path. So that's what the whole goal of it was. But, um, but obviously me being who I am, that wasn't that easy, of course. So I ended up getting in with the wrong group of people, met a girl. And then once I met the girlfriend, my whole life went upside down for, you know, a good Not part you, of- Noha. I'm guessing no. I'm you. <laughs> we're looking, we're looking at 14 years ago. Yeah. Almost. So, yeah, I was 11. Yeah. <laughs> I was only a kid when I was uh, when I was here in Canada. I was 15 when Noah was like 10, 11 in France as a, like a child, basically. So I was <laughs> across the world. So right. And we. Um, so what happened was uh, I got in with the wrong crowd of people in Kelowna. Um, was street racing. Was doing drugs, drinking, driving. You, I can, I can only emphasize how crazy and chaotic it really was because if I was to say some of the stuff that I can remember from back then 
I'm pretty sure the listeners and viewers of this podcast would be absolutely disgusted at what happens to people in addiction, in alcoholism. And people don't, if I was to bring the nitty gritty of it up, people would not truly understand because if they haven't been through that life to hear some of the stuff that happens in addiction and alcoholism, it's quite disgusting to your average person. So of course, the whole purpose of these things and me talking with you, talking with other people is all based on the part of inspiration. So that will move me on. You know, let's go from 15 to 19 now. So 15 to 19, I was addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol here in Kelowna, street racing, partying, doing absolutely everything negatively under the sun that I could do. And then when I was 19, my daughter was conceived. So uh, my daughter's name is Autumn. She lives here in Kelowna. She's she's an amazing young girl growing up into a young woman. And I'm grateful that now I have a like the opportunity to be a part of her life and she actually gets along quite well with Noah so uh, it's really nice to see that transition especially for Autumn she's at such a at a manipulative age where eight nine is real transitioning time so if she doesn't have a father father figure there and she doesn't have people that she can look up to well then I don't want to imagine what the path going forward would be because I don't want to be the one that put her in that position so yeah, so Autumn, uh, obviously, I wasn't around for the first four or five years of her life. Even up till about a year ago, I wasn't there because I was homeless. I was on East Hastings Street in Vancouver. I left at 19. I left Kelowna. When my daughter was conceived, I left Kelowna because I wasn't ready to be a father. I didn't know what I was doing. I was very much on a death, on a death downward spiral. So I had already suffered a couple of heart attacks and a minor stroke by this stage. So... I um, and all related to drugs, no ongoing health issues. It was all just strictly drugs. I've had, you know, now to date, I've had five heart attacks, two strokes, uh, two grand mal seizures, and broken all my ribs twice. You know, I've had a bunch of different health issues. I've sat in a wheelchair, sat on the side of East Hastings Street for half a year with no shoes. Like, I literally went through everything you could possibly imagine at the bottom of the barrel. So, so learning and building from it was kind of inevitable because I went through so many bad things and I didn't die. I had no choice but to learn from it because if I kept going, I would just be living like a hypocrite, essentially. So what happened was 19 years old, I went to Vancouver. I was young. I just turned 19. So I was like excited to get out in the world, be in a big city across the con- across the planet from my parents on my own. So going to Vancouver was quite easy. I got on, got on a plane. Next thing you know, 45 minutes later, I'm in my new hotel that I stayed at for a month, downtown Vancouver. Got a job as a cook because as I was growing up through my whole life, I always wanted to be a chef. Gordon Ramsay inspired me to be a chef. I watched him a lot when I was young. And my whole, I had worked in a kitchen. My dad had got me my first kitchen job in Dublin, but I was like 13 years old. I worked as a dishwasher in this hotel, downtown Dublin, because he had major connections. So I wanted to be a chef. So my dad got me in the door of the kitchen and said, hey, well, we'll get you and a starting position as like a dishwasher to see how you like the atmosphere. So I ended up, uh, of course, loving it, growing my passion to be a chef and cook higher and higher as the years went on. And uh, when I was 21 in Vancouver, I was in the peak of my addiction, but somehow I managed to go to culinary school. So I went to the Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts downtown Vancouver, just on Granville Island there. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I did the half a year culinary diploma, which in my case turned out to be a bit more because with the addiction, I didn't actually pass my test the first time. I had to fight and persevere to come back a second time, which the culinary school allowed me to do. So because I was in such a bad addiction problem, I missed a lot of classes. I was on my way of getting kicked out of the culinary school, but my love for cook, my passion for becoming a chef over overpowered the addiction temporarily enough to get my foot in the door, get the training completed and gain a gold seal in the culinary certifi- certification. So very fascinating. Yeah, it was a very they helped me a lot. They mentored me, they guided me. Uh, the chefs from Pacific Institute, I won't mention their name just because I haven't talked to them about it, but they um, they got all the staff at Pacific Institute, they guided me, they helped me, they mentored me, they believed in me and they saw everything that I was going through and they watched me persevere. So they gave me a once in a lifetime opportunity to come back a couple of weeks after I had failed my original test and said, hey, we'll give you another chance, come in with a clean head and just retake the test again, which in normal world would have cost thousands of dollars, but they but they saw something in me. So I had an opportunity that not many people had. So I passed the test second time around, not a problem, and got my diploma, got my certification, went off, uh, then went to White Spot in Tawasin, worked there fresh out of culinary school, did the circuit of Vancouver. So went from culinary school to White Spot in Tawasin, lived in Tawasin for a year of my life almost, working at a White Spot, moved back downtown Vancouver, lived in Burnaby, lived in New West. And then next thing you know, uh, I was in drug and alcohol treatment. So at about 20, just turning 22, I was out of culinary school. I was about a year into being a chef, but my addiction finally overcame me, and I ended up uh, ending, ending. I ended up in drug and alcohol treatment for the first time. So, mm. when I was 22, I went to the Orchard on Bowen Island. It's a high, higher end drug and rehabilitation center, secluded on an island with very amazing services, very good, dedicated staff, and. I spent half a year there almost. I was a day shy of six months sober. The first time I ever tried to get sober, I was like a day shy of six months. I left the I left the treatment center and I went straight to the bar. Why? And because I would, the alcoholism and the addiction was way too overpowering to try and control at the time. I was, wow. it was the time I had ever attempted treatment, right? So 95% of people who go into drug and alcohol addiction treatment, they do not survive the first time. Relapses are such a sad part of addiction and alcoholism, but they are very much predominant. So if you don't plan for a relapse, you could be in a very dangerous situation. But me, I had major connections through the treatment world because people saw something in myself that I didn't see. So I had a lot of people that stood in my corner, a lot of people that fought for me. And, you know, a couple of years went by, I won't get too much into the details because this is where treat, where alcohol and uh, drug addiction kind of completely consumed my life. There was nothing positive that came out of it. I went through job, 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 homeless, not homeless, homeless again, not homeless again. It just, it was a non-stop revolving door, which I just couldn't get out of. And then it all came to my worst when, you know, I was like 20, 
23, I think, 20, 22 turning 23. And I ended up spending half a year of my life almost on East Hastings Street with no shoes because I could not get the better of my addiction. So completely overpowered me, took my money from me. I couldn't stop feeding myself drugs and alcohol. You know, every, every negative thing that comes with that lifestyle, of course, money is non-existent. And when it is existent, it goes right to the drug dealer's pocket. So I completely, you know, took a negative side of it and I didn't really have any hope. I had 0% hope at that time. I was, you know, because when you're sitting on the side, you know he's Hastings Street, just like a lot of the people listening to this will see, right? They know what it's like to drive down East Hastings Street and look at the people sitting on the side of the road and wondering what's going through their minds and see, wondering how they got to that position. And, you know, all I can say to people is that if you go down East Hastings Street and look at the person just sitting on the side of the road with their head down, that was me for like half a year, going to the Union Gospel Mission, getting food, getting free snacks along my day, walking the streets, looking for money on the ground, asking people for smokes. Like it was a very negative, depressing way to live. But because I hadn't died yet, I had already, I was only 23, right? I thought that my life was pretty much gonna be over in the next year or two if I hadn't already been dead. So I, you know, so I really, didn't want that for myself so that was kind of when when I when I sat on Hastings Street it was kind of when I started my epiphany of saying that this isn't who I want to be so I'm going to start a new path and so I'm going to try and improve so uh, I ended up back in Kelowna I, I uh, drove it was funny actually I met a guy on East Hastings Street and we were going to get better together we were actually going to go to Calgary and go to a treatment center together a new province new treatment center we had everything connected with these guys to give us housing we had contacted everyone ourselves and it turned out that this is where destiny kicked in now so my destiny was to be in Kelowna because we took I remember I had the GPS on my phone we had a bunch of drugs we had a bunch of alcohol. We drove, we left Vancouver with our drugs and alcohol and said, we're gonna, by the time we get to Calgary, drugs and alcohol will be gone to transition into sobriety by having our last hurrah. And I still, to this day, don't know how the GPS directed me, but I ended up in Kelowna when I was on my way to Calgary. Cool. Uh, yeah. Sorry, your phone is cutting out a little bit. Uh, died on the highway. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> got now, me there? Now, now you seem to be coming back. <laughs> yeah. No, so we, so we ended up in Kelowna and I was 23 at the time, and of course, this is when my drug addiction was at its worst, so I had prepared to go to treatment, but next thing you know, I'm in Kelowna, just where I had left years ago because of the drug addiction and the negativity behind it. So, of course, I came back to Kelowna, things didn't get better, I tried to get involved with my daughter's life for about a year. Her mother was really nice, let me stay with them, tried to help guide me into a, an, um, a beginner's father's role to try and be involved in my daughter's life. But drugs were very much still predominant in my life. I couldn't do anything for anybody. Couldn't even, you know, my hygiene level wasn't even the greatest. I couldn't remember to shower every day. I wasn't eating well. I was only 116 pounds when I, when I started, uh, I actually was introduced to uh, methamphetamines at the age of 
22 when I was in Hastings Street, but I was only transitioning. So when I ended up in Kelowna again, uh, methamphetamines were basically had the city under a vice. So I went right down that path, started, um, I never actually, I never was an IV user. I was more of a kind of party drug kind of guy. I always wanted to kind of keep the party going, essentially, if you will. So methamphetamines, uh, snorting methamphetamines were a big thing for me because it kept me awake. It was cheap. It would keep me on my toes. And so that I got trapped into that very dangerous uh, addiction very quickly. So I was, um, I went from sleeping on, on, in a boat on the side of a highway in someone's backyard in Kelowna because they didn't want to give me a place to stay but they had a boat in their backyard so they said hey you can sleep in our boat if you need somewhere to stay so I was living on the back of a rundown old boat for about a month or two and then I went down to Kelowna tried to get my life together tried to go to treatment another time didn't work very well lasted like a week and uh, next thing you know my story took a drastic negative downflux and this is where it kind of gets a bit intense so this what I'm about to say may unnerve a few people but it's part of the story so okay. what happened yeah. was when I was 23 years old I was depressed I was fed up with my life and downtown Kelowna no money and I had actually, uh, in the days previous to this happening, I actually, I was roaming around in the bushes and looking for change, trying to find a place to sleep, looking for things like crazy people do. They roam through bushes, they travel miles and miles to try and just find things, coincidentally. That's what people seem to do when they're high on drugs. So I, um, I actually came across a gun. So what I did was I had a gun and I had ammunition and everything. And I, I thought about taking my life, but I said, no, 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 I'm gonna, maybe I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sell this, use the money from this to get off the streets and buy my rent again and try and fix my life. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I found this, I know it's worth money. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm gonna try and sell this to somebody so I can get a place, get off the streets and start to get my life back together again. So I was like, okay, this is cool. I'm, I have some, I have a note of positivity thinking that I might have some money coming back into my pocket to actually fix my life, to start fixing my life. But um, somebody ended up seeing me with the gun. So I ended up actually pulling it to my head. I loaded the loaded the eight-shot revolver and pulled it to my head during a um, children's festival downtown Kelowna. And I, and I threatened to end my life with a loaded firearm because I heard that the police were on the way. So I thought that my life was over pretty much. So I said, hey, I might as well just end my life right here. This is it. So I pulled the gun out, pulled it right to my head. And and there's, um, I still to this day, I remember every single thing identically. And all I did was I pulled it to my head, popped the firing pin back and was literally, I was finger on the trigger. I was a millisecond away from death. And this young girl who was 15 at the time, I believe 15, 16, she walked up to me face value and she looked at me and said, you don't want to do this. And I kind of stopped for a second, had a glitch of, wow, oh my God, what's happening? Zoned into exactly what I was doing, realized that we realized what had happened. So I threw the gun in my backpack and I ran away. I ran across the city, downtown Kelowna with a gun in my backpack. It's a miracle it didn't go off to this day. I don't yeah, know how it loaded. Oh, it was loaded, cocked, the firing pin was cocked. Yeah. Every I literally, that gun should have blown up on my back. And I, so I don't know what happened, but ran to my friend's parents' house across the street. 
was talking with them just across the road and I I was freaking out saying that I didn't know what had happened. I had done something really bad and I needed consolidation to know that everything was going to be okay. But next thing you know, I was surrounded. Uh, they had the whole street blocked off. I realized right then and right there that when there's a SWAT team with rifles pointed to your face, you kind of, you have a very quick realization that if you do anything, you're going to get shot. So I had no choice. I had the backpack on my back. I took it off. Even when they were screaming at me not to, I took it off. I owned, I owned what I had done. And that was the end of it. I went to a psych ward. Two days later, a doctor came, said, do you know what happened? I explained to her for like two hours everything in my life, what led up to that situation and how it happened. She looked at me, said, well, what happened to you was clearly the workings of a drug-induced psychosis. So she basically said, you know, you're free to go, but now you have to go to court. So I had a promise to appear at court and now I had weapons charges and all these charges to deal with and I didn't know what was going to happen to me. So I was on bail for about two years and then my sentencing day came along. December 17th of 2015 was the day that I went to court and the judge said to me that I'm sentenced to two years in prison for possession of a firearm with dangerous intent. And that was for trying to end my own life. So I thought that it was a bit flawed, quite frankly. I was, uh, I was a bit taken back by it because I knew that something would happen, but I thought two years for trying to kill yourself was a bit rough. So I accepted it. I said, thank you to the judge as I was walking by in handcuffs. I said, thank you very much. This is exactly what I need. I'm going to show you guys and show the government that I can actually change my life, that I can switch this around. And that was day one of my sobriety. The day the day I went to prison was the day I officially got sober and held that to this day. So wow, congratulations. Thank you. So what happened was went to jail, uh, started inspiring people, started trying to talk to people, started doing the NA, the AA meetings, started talking with the guards and talking about how people came to jail, how people get out of jail, what's the best best type of recovery track to take and started just talking to people about brainstorming how I could fix this whenever I got out of jail. I was I was well prepared to do two years, but I think my lawyer or my parents or somebody filed for my parole without me knowing. So one day, five months into a two-year sentence, I was released and they just, they just let me go. And I said, they said, yeah, you're going to be free to go in the next few days, get ready and you're out of here. And I said, well, oh my God. So I ended up uh, leaving jail. Uh, at five months sober, six months sober. And then I went to the Salvation Army downtown Victoria. I spent 11 months on day parole there and got a job. Uh, the government gave me all the rope in the world to hang myself with. I went off. I actually started motivating people, inspiring people, going to AA meetings, trying to help, trying to get really, I got really involved with the uh, Salvation Army staff to try and give back to people, to try and help however I could. I just wanted to be involved with the recovery side of things and the positive side. So okay. that was that was my drive to, to keep pushing forward. So about 11 months passes, I got off day parole and then I had to start two years of probation. So I was doing weekly, bi-weekly, monthly probation meetings, reporting sessions, constantly under watch by the government, by my, uh, by my probation officer, who was really nice. She helped me out wonderfully in the Victoria probation system. And uh, yeah, they basically gave me everything I ever wanted to hang myself with. And me being the smart person that I was now growing into sobriety, I chose not to hang myself, but to persevere. 
Okay, so, so when you say that, what do you mean? Because you said it twice now. And I'm like, what does he mean by he gave, they gave me all the rope in the world to hang myself with? Like, it, that that means something negative to me, that the government no, has given actually you. Actually, quite, it's quite a positive thing, actually. It okay. means that the government believes in you. So what they did, when they give you all the rope in the world to hang yourself with, it's it means that they're giving you privilege. Yeah, they're giving you freedom. Okay privileges and the rope is extended the rope smiles away from where they are but the second you decide to hang yourself with that rope depending on the severity of what you do is how much they pull the rope back in i get ya. okay cool <laughs> definitely <laughs> not something i'd ever heard before in my life until oh, yeah. this point. i feel like i learned something today it's awesome well i learned a lot that, so that's they uh that's what the government that was the expression at the time that the government used to kind of relate to people in my situation with a rugged look at life because they say to you they said to me they said we're gonna give you rope to hang yourself with it's up to you whether you hang yourself or not with that rope until the rope is released from your neck which took me two years later after a bunch of negatives bunch of negative stuff bunch of bad experiences in victoria i was homeless in victoria for like 111 days straight with a backpack walking the streets looking for somewhere to live could and because when the one thing that people don't realize when people get out of jail was the day i got out of jail was the day i got crushed by debt yeah of course so i so when i got out the day i got out of jail was the day i realized i owed about 70 grand to the world and so, how do you pay back seventy thousand dollars? Is that from credit card payments, ambulance bills? Like, what are we talking? We're talking a bunch of stuff that I did in my addiction, money that I owed to people. There was like, there was payday loans, for instance. That was a huge uh, emphasis. I payday loan, payday loan, payday loan from like ten or fifteen different companies because in addiction, you try to be resourceful, right? So you try to find okay. ways. To make money and not realizing the backlash of signing a contract, taking a simple $300 payday loan. A $300 payday loan unpaid three years later turns into either collections, a serious collections, or realistically about a grand. And so times that by 10 or 15, but with higher amounts in there. So you got the idea of wow. a Because you were employed, you were working, but yeah, you were so throughout yeah. Is right, but I was addicted. I was doing drugs in the kitchen. I was drinking. You know, I was a nighttime dinner dinner cook. So I would go in, do the heavy lifting, go in at three p.m., leave at one a.m., drink, do drugs the morning after, sleep for an hour, go back to work, and it was the cycle was vicious in the kitchens. Yeah. So we, um, yeah. So my story kind of starts to take a extremely positive term after this because when. Is it this one? Because of, of the lady sitting next to you, or before that? Oh, Noah, <laughs> Noah came along last year, actually. So April of actually, last year. Four years sober. Hmm. You were four years sober by that point, then. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was yeah just that's good. Because I have years. a lot of people in my life um, that are also a part of AA, and has yeah. um, my brother, like one of someone I call my brother. He's 13 years this year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Like the entire AA community is so, so, so amazing. But I do know for a fact that the very first like year or two that you're sober, you should not get in a relationship. So that's amazing to hear that Noah came along much later. Well, don't, 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 uh, don't, don't be fooled by the whole period of not hearing something in the two years. In those few years, 
it was relationships that took me the reason I was in relationships through my sobriety through the first three years and that was what kind of prolonged my recovery was because I got into really negative relationships there was a girl with uh, three kids for instance that I got involved with then everything was very up in the air because I just wanted to be loved I wanted to be with somebody in my sobriety but I didn't realize that by thinking that way of course the first person I fell to was completely negative not good for my sobriety was drinking a lot but I wasn't drinking I was literally just watching people collapse around me and because I didn't want to go back to that I had every opportunity to have a drink at any stage in my recovery I've had so many countless opportunities to go back to that lifestyle but what makes that what keeps me on the level of people like your brother for instance that are of 13 plus years of sobriety is the perseverance in believing that this is not the only way to live this is this is a negative way to live and going back to that one drink will mean that you will have another lifetime of negativity along with heart attacks, strokes, all the health issues that come with it, loss of friends, loss of family, people just not wanting you to be in their life because you can't control yourself, right? That's I didn't I didn't want that again. So I so I became a free man uh last year, last April. Yeah, we, I I start well it kind of began. So what happened was I left Victoria I went to Vancouver, back to Vancouver to try and give it a good old sober shot myself. I didn't really have much. I was like trying to get a job, wasn't really working out too well in the work industry. I was kind of I found my own niche to being a chef that I wanted to be. So I ended up actually I was homeless at the time in downtown Vancouver and I just got my disability check. So what I did was I had about $300 left to my name and instead of buying food with that, I ended up uh, buying licensing to start a catering company instead. So I went to Small Business BC. Cool. I went to Small Business BC and I was guided through the process of opening my own company, got all the registration, the GST numbers, the tax documents. I did everything myself from the ground up and registered my catering business, Edward Malone Catering. And what I did was I actually went back to my old culinary school and they gave me a job there. So I was working there and I gained a few connections and stuff and everyone in the culinary school I was working there for like a month or two maybe and uh the the school realized that I was going somewhere with this so they wanted to help me and they said, "You know what, Eddie, like you're way too all over the place. We don't want you to work here because we want you to pursue your dream to actually run your own company." So my niche for Edward Malone Catering was I was the only caterer in Vancouver at the time. I was the first person to ever start catering on a budget. Mm-hmm. So, what I did was I said to my clients, I said, "Hey, what's what do you want? What's your budget to spend? What do you want to get for the money you're willing to spend?" And what I would do is I would custom in their niches to their budget. So, I didn't have a menu, didn't have anything. It was the quick bootleg way to start a company but to be fair at the same time and to do business the right way. So I just started a niche that nobody else was doing and next thing you know we're doing uh next thing you know I had met Noah so we met uh a couple of days before Easter Sunday of 2019 and we had we met on a Tinder date. She cabbed to me at th- actually you know what? I love Tinder date stories. These are hilarious. So I'll, so now this is where I'll I'll cut off and I'll let Noah tell the story about how she 
because I think she can emphasize this better than I can now going forward because she's a bit more well spoken. I'm all over the place, like as <laughs> usual. So, uh, <laughs> the other <laughs> owner of True Flavors, you guys, for whoever's listening or watching. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, uh, I'll let Noah explain how we mesh. And for instance, before I let her explain that, I'll explain for instance, the tattoos people are probably wondering about. So, um, major tattoos that kind of make me stick out from a lot of people. So if you can see, I have my whole head tattooed right here, which... Oh yeah, I saw someone with similar tattoos the other day and I was thinking, oh my gosh, like, isn't that a really painful spot behind the ears? And I wanted it's... to approach the person, but then I was like, no, I can't be that weirdo in nature's fair. <laughs> it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't about the pain, it was more about what it represented for me. So oh. I got the tattoo on my arm and my head and my neck to, to symbolize the chaos that tried to take my life in addiction. Because I'm right-handed, right-footed, It's my right side is my strong side and my left side is my weak side. So oh, what happened was I ended up, uh, the day Noah and I met was the day I actually got my head tattooed, symbolizing <laughs> that I was never going to change, that this was what tried to consume me. And of course, the whole addiction thing behind that, the whole stigmatism was that if I had gone back to drink or drugs, imagine what that would have become on my face. You know what I mean? Okay, so, so Noah, he shows up with a look, but just saran wrap on his face. There we go. And yeah. your turn. <laughs> I just, I just had come back from work. It was like 2.30 in the morning and he messages me. Oh, I messaged you. I can't remember which one started the conversation, uh, but I pretty just much- a tin, Just a Tinder connection. Exactly. But I pretty much cut it off very quickly because I don't like talking on the phone and he hates texting. So there is no middle ground other than just meeting. And I'm like, well, I'm still dressed. I'm still up. If you are dressed and up and out, we can just meet for like half an hour, have a chat and then go from there later on. So I decided at like 3.30 in the morning to cab to him to Kingsway in Victoria at a 7-Eleven. Oh my God, this is such a Tinder. <laughs> this is the biggest Tinder date I've ever, oh my gosh. This is and like. The best thing he said was, I just got that head tattoo done and this is what it symbolizes, what exactly what he just described to you. Right. And he said, I'm gonna stay here forever, so. If you, if this is too much for you, I think we should not even, you know, consider talking even further. I'm like, it's a tattoo. I don't really care about that. So we're just gonna move on from that and see what's going on. And so we sat at the McDonald's that was right next to the seven. We had a coffee, then another coffee. And what pretty much happened is that he explained to me everything that he had just told you. Yeah. <laughs> And for two or three hours, we sat there and he just told me every single worst thing about his life. Right. And that, to me, that was very odd, but it was so beautiful. I've never had someone be that brutally honest to just share absolutely everything that they have. No hidden things, no, you know, no hidden things, no crazy stuff happening. It was just, well, no, a lot of crazy stuff happening, but it was just so straightforward that after that coffee, we actually started walking and we walked throughout the night. And since that day we met, we have not left each other's side. 
because we just kept talking and talking and talking and the conversation's been going on for like more than a year and a half now a year and four months something like that so it's just it we we found each other his i'm very toned down calm very infinite patience i just i do not care about most things because at the end of the day this is my opinion you can have your opinion and so on and so forth on multiple things so this if this is how you view the world sure okay go ahead but with eddie being very intense very driven i've never seen someone with that much drive in my life just the motivation of if this is something that has to be done let's just go do it right now why wait why wait until i finish this so i do that no let's just go right now and then it just clicked and we moved on and we been places and seen things and lived everywhere pretty much in BC. <laughs> yeah, this is this is where after after we had met Noah moved in with me. I had just found a place around the corner from where we were living or from where we had first met. So I said to her, I said, "Look, I actually just got this place." And two days later after meeting her, I said, "Hey, you want to just move in with me?" She moved her furniture, she moved her house and she came to live with me two days after we met. Oh my god, it's like the lesbians with the U-Haul. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Pretty yeah, much. You got so hilarious. Oh my god, I love it. Oh friend got a U-Haul. I put everything that I had in that U-Haul. I said goodbye to my roommate and I moved in with him two days later. She fascinating. Oh. And then two days later I was gone. Oh. So, so what actually happened was Noah, all of Noah's friends thought that she was actually going through something or I was doing something negative because everyone thought I was crazy. Yeah, everyone was like you're literally insane. insane. This guy is like you know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> like what are you doing? Cuz I was working stably. I've been in the same job in Canada for the last like Three years almost I had been with them. Everything was great. Everything was fine. But then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, actually, I found a boyfriend and I'm moving in with him like today. And they're like, what is, what's going on? Like, are you all right? Is your mental health okay? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm all good. It's just it it happens, and it's it's very much overwhelming to feel something that strong that quickly because you're like. what is going on with my brain like i know my heart is telling me that this is right and this is the right thing to do but no one in their right mind with a logical you know thought process would move into something to someone's place 2 days later but i'm clearly fine <laughs> now yeah. like it's 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 the best decision i've made in my life it's just if someone that is that honest tells me everything in one go in one sitting and i can't take all of that and i haven't ran away it means that there is potential plus i'm a chef as well so that was just a bonus like you <laughs> a culinary world but opposite of the culinary world cuz he's the night guy i'm the morning girl i like doing paperwork i like the bureaucracy of it well not like it but i know how to do it and i just like to get it over with but also he's on the like savory side of things i'm a baker i love making cakes breads muffins pastries and so on and so forth so it was kind of like this is a great you know match this is this is tetris coming along and finishing the page you know and you got your yin you got your yang it's awesome yeah. <laughs> fascinating 
Sadly, how it works on a daily basis, his intensity is toned down by me being just me. Just literally, you saw it for most of the interview. I just sit and listen. That's what I do most of the time. I sit and I listen. I analyze everything. I hear what people have to say, and he just talks. Like for the first, the first date we had, he talked like three hours straight, and I didn't say a word. But that I don't care about because I like listening. I like listening to people. I like listening to stories. And then I had the opportunity while walking to tell my fair share of the story. So I talk for three hours. So it's kind of a balanced thing at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. And then, so what? So what happened after that was we we met, we moved in together, and Noah, obviously being a baker, she she said, "Hey, you have a catering company now. That's great. I want to jump on board." So what happened was we both.、Um, We both just started doing events. We got、uh, our first wedding, custom cakes, everything. It actually started with、um, our catering company. Officially started with our first custom cake when I met Noah. We put up a Yelp business account and we were like, "Hey, let's try and get a little bit of business here." And and、uh, we were we were offering custom cakes and stuff like that. So we ended up having these two university students call us at like. One in the morning or something, and they said, "Hey, we want a custom hus- husky cake for our buddy's birthday." And I said, "Okay, what's your budget?" And they said, "Sixty bucks." So I said, "You know what? We'll do you a husky cake for sixty dollars." Noah did an amazing custom husky cake. We、uh, dropped it off to them, and from there it just spitballed. And we ended up、uh, we did our first wedding not too long after in West Vancouver. We did a surprise wedding together. We spent our Christmas Eve cooking. For a plastics manufacturer on Anasus Island, just outside of Vancouver, New West area, we、um, and then after we did that event, we spent our Christmas Eve giving the remainder of the food from the event to the homeless people on East Hastings Street. So it was actually really beautiful, and so it kind of spitballed, 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 and next thing you know, the new year is upon us, and. Uh, New Year's Eve, downtown Vancouver. We had rented a hotel just、uh, around the corner from one of her friends' New Year's parties that、uh, we were going to go to. I was the only sober person in Vancouver, I'm pretty sure, at this time, downtown Vancouver, on New Year's Eve. And we go into. She brings me into this this party. We had a we had purchased a, a ring together,、uh, an engagement ring together, we, because we got an insane deal on it. Like I bought. Her wedding, her, her engagement ring for forty dollars, but it's real. It's actually a real wedding. It's a real ring, like the <laughs> silver with with everything. Like it was, it was just a story that was going out of business. So, or a seasonal change or something like the collection change. So, I got a crazy good deal and could afford my. Hopefully, she said yeah to be fiance a ring, right? So, I, I spent forty dollars on a ring with her beside me, and then what happened was over the days leading up to New Year's Eve. I had kind of made her forget about it because I knew in myself that I was going to propose to her on New Year's Eve. Of course, I was. But he sidetracked me so bad. Like we bought it very early in the morning, and by the time the day was over, I was like, "Oh yeah, that happened too." <laughs> so, so downtown Vancouver. We're at the New Year's party. There's like 100, 150 drunk European people around me, and I'm just like standing there. Essentially, I'm like students in UBC, so I know a lot of exchange people and a lot of people internationally, especially. So my friend, who was also my coworker at the time, she had thrown that party, and 
uh, downtown. And I told Eddie that this, like, I knew that he would not necessarily, you know, go to any party. Like, it has to be a very friendly, loving environment. And tasteful. That, and tasteful, yeah. Like, no one's too pushy. There's nothing, like, extreme going on. It's kind of still, you know, tamed and controlled. And I knew that that party was going to be, you know, that case because the host, who is one of my greatest friends, she's one of the most loving, caring and understanding human beings I had ever met in my life. So I knew that Eddie would be comfortable going to that party. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken him in the first place. I wouldn't be like, no, we'll just go somewhere else and we'll do something. But I knew that this would have been a right fit. So I was like, might as well just give it a go and just try. And yeah, everything, yeah, everything we, just spitball from there again. <laughs> well, we ended up, yeah, we were at the, we were at the party and I had talked to her friends behind her back. They didn't, she didn't realize. And I had said, look, at a minute, at two minutes to midnight or three minutes to midnight or something, turn off the music and I'm going to propose to Noah in front of everybody. So the girls were all like, oh my God, oh my God. And next thing you know, uh, Noah was getting water. The music stopped and I have the video. If you actually look at the Castanet interview, it has the snippet there. Okay. Yeah, they show it in part of the interview in one of the flash throughs. And uh, Noah turned around after filling up a glass of water for herself. The music was off and I was on my knee with a ring out for her. And uh, she literally broke down in tears. The whole party just went insane. People started screaming. And next thing you know, I put, I actually, I said my, I said my part to her and I ended up putting the ring on her finger. Uh, right at the new year. So within two seconds of the new year, give or take. I, it was perfect timing. Everyone oh. started screaming. They missed the new year because of my proposal. <laughs> oh, so that was great. And yeah, next thing you know, we, uh, shortly after that, we were, cause at the time of new years, we were actually living on Bowen Island. We had left Vancouver to go over to Bowen Island for like half a year to try our own thing and do the catering. We were like catering for the municipality of Bowen Island, doing like Legion soup lunches to give back to the community of Bowen Island. And just trying to, just trying to, I tried to get involved with the treatment center again. I wanted to do like a bit of speaking and stuff, but of course that I'm not, I didn't really talk too much about that because it was six months where everything was very much up in the air and not really anything happened out of it. Like I did a motivational talk and I took my four years of sobriety at the treatment center that I started at, but it was kind of, you know, it wasn't really something that I was too proud of because we kind of got sidetracked for half a year, tried to make a life of it on Bowen Island and the community didn't really accept us the way we would have wanted. So we kind of got pushed out of Bowen Island, went back to Vancouver and uh, yeah, next week it brings us to the next, the last half a year. Uh, we ended up, we hit our year anniversary. Uh, we hit then a couple of months later. So April was our year anniversary, May, June, uh, May, June happened. And then my birthday is on the 7th of July. So we said, we had come back to Kelowna and I said to Noah, I said, Hey, I want to go back to Kelowna. I want to visit my daughter. I want to see my friends again. I'm sober. I want to try and start rekindling this. And we ended up coming back here for a visit. Saw a bunch of my friends, saw a bunch of, it was literally meant to be a weekend thing, which turned into like, Hey, let's go home. Let's plan moving and let's try and get back here in the next couple of weeks. So we ended up uh, reconnecting with all my friends, reconnected with my daughter. Uh, we really thought we saw positivity. And then out of nowhere, essentially, uh, the COVID uh, 
the COVID happened. So we, yeah. the COVID the COVID happened. So Edward Malone Catering therefore became non-existent in the business world. I started losing a lot of business, pretty much all of it because COVID, right? So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push people to take my services during the global pandemic. So basically, Edward Malone Catering I knew was doomed because we couldn't expand. We couldn't get an investor on board in the right times to expand when we needed to. So what we did was we just said, hey let's think about what we can do in Kelowna. So we were just sitting there talking about how things and how food comes together, how ingredients work together, how how something happens, how something is born. And all of a sudden we looked at each other and we said, hey, you know, the true flavors of the ingredients, we want to emphasize that. And next thing you know, we looked at each other and said, oh my God, true flavors, organic <laughs> and bam. That was it. I went off. I got the name approval done myself a few weeks later. Which I, is incredible. Yeah, which nobody is, thought of that. Like, <laughs> come on, like it's right there. Yeah, like nobody it's had right nobody had taken the name True Flavors, so we had thought to ourselves like, wow, this is a godsend. Like this was meant to be. So we Wait, had. But like, how did this whole vegan thing come up? Because you guys weren't vegan this whole time. Oh, right? oh, yes, yes. So now this leads into the question we just, you asked us previous to starting the interview. Yeah. Was, so how we became vegan, we were sitting in Vancouver, we were in our home, uh, we were watching a documentary about three and a half, four months ago now almost, and we were watching a documentary, uh, The Cowspiracy, What the Health, and we're both chefs we both you know we both see the logic in becoming vegan but it wasn't really predominant enough in both of us to actually want to do it so yeah we watched the first part of the documentary cowspiracy and it was very much about the environment the impact of agriculture farming water land and so on and so forth that to me it did touch me like it did trigger something but at the end of the day i'm very much a realistic person and I think that my own being like I can't really fight against people of that stature and magnitude in a way like I can't by myself go fight all the farming lobbies and so on and so forth I can't do that so it didn't really push us to become vegan but when we watched the second part of it which was what the health this wasn't about global warming on the earth it was still about that a bit but it was more about your own health what meat actually does to you what you know eggs do to you what milk cheese what it actually is and how its components are not necessarily the best for you and that's not from a medical point of view that's just me watching the documentary that's what yeah. i understood it's how how the hor how the hormones and the enzymes in meat and animal brace products how they affect your body your mental health your healing capacity absolutely right. everything to do with everything in your life is affected by eating meat so what we said was it was a thursday night we watched it we looked at each other and said oh shit we gotta go vegan now. I feel bad. Like we have to. We have to go vegan. And and if we and go vegan, the second thought that the two of us had pretty much simultaneously was, well, if I'm a vegan and I'm a chef, I am bound to open a vegan organic because we went full blown straight away. Yeah, vegan we, organic straight up. We took no, we, we know, took timing like, of wheat 
no. We took 48 hours and two days after watching this, we had swapped out our fridge, our spices, everything. We replaced every single thing in our house with 100% organic plant-based food. But we did give all of it away. We didn't throw any of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can't so just we, like put it in the garbage and like create no. more plastic waste, right? So yeah, of course. Yeah. Like wasting food, so we just gave I love all that you guys did that because like, um, sorry to interrupt you, but like for my app too, like I have the five factors for sustainable consumption. And there's a reason why impact on human health is number one. And like, it's not just the food we consume, but it's also the products we consume. It's our clothing, it's our beauty products, our skincare, like you name it, everything impacts our health. Oh yeah. And I think that's honestly what most people need in order to make that shift is like, we're screwing ourselves, (laughs) right? We're living in our own bodies. And as we realize that if this is what I'm eating, why would I and think that this is the best? Why would I open a restaurant that serves something that I do not believe to be good for other people? Because in my point of view, I would be harming people. If I'm an organic vegan, that's what that's the least I can feed other people as a chef. I'm not going to turn around and give them, you know, full fat, creamy mac and cheese made with whole milk. And when I drink like almond milk or cashew milk, actually I drink oat milk, this is the best one. But you know what I mean? Like it's, I can't do that morally and consciously. I cannot do that. If people still want to eat meat and do their own thing, that's completely fine. But at the end of the day, we decided to open that business. So this is what we want to provide the community with. Yeah, because we were already we were already vegan before True Flavor. So we went vegan, did all of our switch over, and we said, hey, what's the point of going regular vegan, eating like fake cheeses, fake bacon, all this type of crap, to try and disguise meat when we could just go organic vegan, 100% organic, and do it the proper way of sustainability. So then that's when the, the gears were turning, and then from that and being vegan, organic vegan in our own lives that's where true flavors was born and then where 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 better to do true flavors in the okanagan valley sustainable organic farming all around you from penticton to armstrong and i'm sorry but anybody listening to this can know that what i'm saying is 100 true and beneficial to the okanagan community because that the farmers, the produce that comes from the Okanagan Valley is extremely plentiful. It is the highest quality that you can get. The vineyards are around, the wineries are around, the organic farmers are around. And you know, the community thrives on the product that's created within the community of the Okanagan. So there's no shipping involved. There's yeah, there's, there's no, no system. I get so excited going to the farmer's market every week. It's like my, it's yeah, my we're, place. <laughs> You're going to be there Saturday? Okay, I might see you if I'm there on so Saturday. Saturday. So we'll, we'll be talking to your guy there, actually. So, um, so, yeah, we just basically, we said, hey, like, where better to do this? It gives me an opportunity to get back involved with my daughter's life. It gives me a chance to rekindle friendships, to give Noah a new introduction to a different part of Canada that she, or a different part of BC that she's never been to. So we just said, hey, let's move to Kelowna and let's start True Flavors Organic Vegan Cuisine. And we basically packed up our lives within a week. 
two weeks. We had storage unit in Vancouver. We had a storage unit in Vernon. We slept on a friend's couch for a week. We we rented hotels. We subsidized our living just to transition properly. And right now, as it stands, we're actually not even at our place. We're only staying here for a few weeks, but uh, we're actually getting ready to move into a place which we secured the first few days we moved back to Kelowna because yeah. I us to have a perfect place, perfect location to live. So we're actually preparing to move down to the mission. We're moving down to the Playa del Sol. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I love the Playa del Sol. We get to move in September 1st. We have a beautiful home ready. We've got a good lease. We're, we're, we, our cafe is gonna be right down the street, two blocks away, and we're really preparing. So basically we've done all this, not even having an address. Yeah, well, you guys have a purpose and you have a focus, right? So that makes complete sense. So really, so now where we stand, what we did was we invested our money, our energy, our passion into True Flavors. So we went, we bought the domain names. I have an email address for True Flavors. We purchased everything to secure the brand. And uh, we launched our website, our Instagram, our Facebook. I just put up a Yelp business account page yesterday. So we're gonna, I just finished it last night actually. So I've kind of updated my Yelp page. And right now we are, obviously I did everything backwards. We got a business plan. We invested real time and money into securing something and building something that wasn't just hopes and dreams. It was financially plausible. So what we actually did was we had a professional work with us, a restaurant consultant, before we even came back to Kelowna. We had a restaurant consulting work, consultant working with us for about three weeks previous to moving back because we wanted to have a real business plan with real projections, real numbers, market research, everything. We did our due diligence and it turned out that Kelowna was, I'm, I don't know how I am the first ever human being to start a company in the Okanagan that provides organic vegan food in an establishment. I do not know how I'm the first person to do that, but I'm grateful for that because now I have something that I can be proud of in my sobriety, knowing that this is what I'm fighting for. This is what everything led to. And right now we're in the final processes of trying to acquire an investor, someone to jump on board. I just got, when, when your credit screwed from years of addiction, like I'm still uh, waiting on my credit to kind of jump back up. I just kind of got everything leveled on my collections and it took me years to recover from that. But obviously the banks don't want to look at me, the COVID's happening. So what happened was we just kind of, we're ahead, we're, um, we're just kind of waiting on a couple of phone calls. We're making collaborations with uh, vegan partners here in Kelowna. We're trying to get something on board. So I've already got a location. I've got assets. I've got a, a cafe ready to buy. I just can't disclose where it is because of you know privacy issues. But um, but yeah, we've just been trying. We've just been trying to raise funding so we can purchase out purchase our assets and you know, move on and actually give it our fair share because some, I'm, I'm, the one thing I don't like about people that look at me in a business sense, they say, oh, well, you're in the COVID, you're going to fail, right? And I say, well, I, I beg to differ because one, I'm the only person supplying sustainable product in all of the Okanagan Valley. I'm sorry, but nobody else is doing that. I am. So meat, dairy, 
eggs, everything, all chicken, all that stuff. It's not sustainable and it's proven to be bad for you. So why? So that's why I said, hey, I'm going to take an organic vegan approach, be the first person with that title and, you know, just run with it because the world, the way the world is going is into a sustainable one. Because if we keep messing with the environment the way we have been, farming the way we are, doing everything that produces food for the globe if we keep doing this in five years there won't be much of a world left for us to farm to till to, to create products from because it's all gone from cattle or it's all gone from a factory here for mcdonald's or whatever it is right but so i said hey i just want to stay local stay organic nothing not one thing that we will provide to customers from true flavors will come from anywhere outside of the okanagan valley one everything from the salt to the onion to the pepper everything will be organic local to the okanagan for everything that i can physically find exactly it will be of course to a certain extent of you know if i can find organic okanagan rice for example i'll definitely do that like there will be of course like <laughs> challenges regarding the things that yeah. are actually grown in the okanagan and can be made but there's always ways around. i should i should rephrase that purchased in the Okanagan Valley but yeah. it will be organic so yeah. if Even I buy salt and pepper, yeah yeah the salt and pepper is organic everything so I mean that really kind of brings us to the current day that we sit in today really we're you know we're both happy we're both fighting we're both uh, grateful to be able to have the opportunity to speak and tell our story for people like yourself who are truly interested and the support is unbelievable ever since my cast and interview launched we we had over 30,000 views in the first 20 hours and it just absolutely went viral and people started showing us a level of support that I've never seen in my whole life even in, in addiction trying to claw my way back up to the top no no I I've never seen this. It's overwhelming. So I've never done podcasts. I've never done Castanet interviews before. I'm not trained. I wasn't raised to do this type of thing. But now, obviously, the way everything is taking me, I'm I'm the face of True Flavors. We are the faces of True Flavors. And we want to be in the public eye. I want to start giving back to the community of the Okanagan, which I took so much from. We're going to be offering the Give a Meal, Get a Meal program. We're, uh, we're going to be offering full support to the homeless community, to people with mental mental health issues, anyone struggling, anyone that wants to talk. I have people that reach out to me through email, people's parents that are reaching out to me uh, on an addiction level, not on a food level. Right. So uh, basically my whole goal is to give back to the world what I took from it in my addiction and try to persevere 100% to you know become successful. And then that's where the organic underdog comes in. Yeah. That's really, really beautiful. I don't know. So yeah, sorry, sorry about my. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess I guess you can still call yourself the underdog because you're you're coming out on top now, which is very, very beautiful. So for the listeners um, and people watching, obviously you can find True Flavors on the Sustainable Life app. If you're in Kelowna, uh, you can find them in the Eco Service Provider section because they're currently caterers. And then hopefully soon in the restaurant section, um, that'll be very, very exciting once your cafe and your restaurant is up. Um, and then I'll do what I can to make some connections for you too. I, um, I went to a speaker series in Vancouver um, and it was another man, he has a business. He, um, I think it's something to do with like, operates um, old satellites in space. And he oh. actually used to be on the downtown east side as well. So he was homeless. Um, oh wow. He was on the downtown east side. I think like he had left LA or 
wherever um, and had like a very beautiful family and obviously addiction got him. Um, so he was living on the downtown east side and he was sharing his story at um, a series I went to. So I'll see if I can find his name, um, find his email address and do an email introduction with you because someone like that who has a similar background might be interested in investing in you, especially if he's a multimillionaire, right? Yeah. So um, I wouldn't mind doing that that introduction for you. I don't know him personally, but I did see him speak. And I of think um, one of my friends went and spoke to him afterwards. So I can definitely see what what that does for you, if it does anything. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's amazing. That's we're, really that, that's yeah. great. We're so grateful for even the opportunity to potentially have a connection like that, yeah. just because we are reaching out to everybody. I say to people, you know, check out your flavors check out our instagram check out our website you be yeah. the judge and tell me if i'm if i'm crazy or not right like but i'm not i'm clearly not i'm clearly onto something so i want i just want somebody to financially get on board before before it's too late you know what i mean yeah for sure and i'm, I'm sure other people in the community will be great help too who listen to this or watch this um and then maybe by the time they watch this your restaurant is already up and running and you're already so amazing so they'll just be coming to eat your food we're, that's that's the goal. The goal is the second, <laughs> the, second, the second I acquire funding, I'm going to the door of the restaurant. I'm buying my restaurant and I'm literally getting ready to open like ASAP. Awesome. We are I'm really very much ready. But we are, just so everybody knows, we, have, we, are, we haven't set an official date yet, but so everyone knows the goal, the realistic goal is we will be open officially to the public sometime in October. That's exciting. I'm, yes, I'm so, so we are so we are taking pre we are taking pre bookings for catering events. We are taking anyone who wants to connect with us to book in advance for November going forward just because I don't have a date for October. So I said October onwards. I want people to get in touch with us through the website. My email address is there, my number is all over the internet, my personal phone is my work phone. So if you call me, you're getting me directly all the time, twenty four hours a day. <laughs> um, and obviously, yeah, this to, for everyone to spread the word of sustainability and to contact us if they want to you know plan their future events and they're as i said on my yelp page they're vegan fancies <laughs> and you guys could probably cater now too right like um just for like we, private events and stuff we cannot cater fully yes because with the way that business licensing goes in the okanagan i have to have a location that i am certified oh, to be right. at as a commercial kitchen but if you want a personal chef I can do that. I can personal <laughs> chef for people. So as long as I don't do any prep off premises of somebody's yeah. house, I can go to people's houses as a certified chef myself, as a business owner. I can basically hire myself out to do private functions for people, but it has to be on their property with their equipment. Okay, noted. Well, so we'll, we we'll, so we definitely can we can give services. Yes, we can provide we organic. Have already. We have already. We did <laughs> the day that our Castanet interview launched. We got yeah. a call from an amazing gentleman. Won't release his name, obviously. Haven't disclosed that, but um, he. We did a twentieth wedding anniversary day one of our Castanet interview. We went over to his house, uh, surprised his wife. He he called us saying, "Oh my God, there's organic vegan catering. It's about time because my whole family are vegans, organic <laughs> vegans." And we did him and his wife an amazing twentieth anniversary dinner with uh, three courses. We went to the house. We did everything. We were well prepared, we executed. They gave us a beautiful four-star review that we actually have on our website. So please check that out, that's great. And um, yeah, we uh, 
we have a very bright future here because since day one now we actually have a review to go with the first day the interview launched so it's really beautiful we, so true flavors organic vegan cuisine is officially here in the okanagan valley so you know if any i always say to yourself to anybody to just reach out to be curious to ask those questions because if you don't ask me the questions well you know you, you have nobody to be upset with but yourself because you need to find out the facts <laughs> around why we're doing it the food we're producing why we're producing it this way and you know we want people to be involved so i reach out to yourself to the okanagan community to people around the world to get in contact just get in contact hear the story and hopefully one day gordon ramsay will hear this and call me on my phone my dream is to hear my dream is to speak with Gordon Ramsay one day. So, Gordon, if you ever listen to this, <laughs> call me. <laughs> it's one of those things. Yeah, I let's want, get him I want to stop by Kelowna. It'll be great. <laughs> I want it to spread, and I want to. I want to help. I want to give back, and I want to produce something that's just sustainable, delicious, sustainable food. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, you guys. It's been a pleasure, oh, honestly. Thank you so um, much for having us. Yes. Of course. It's great. Thank you so, so much. We're so grateful. For sure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Sustainable Life app is a digital platform which includes a mobile app, website, podcast, and documentary series, all centered around the five factors for sustainable consumption, impact on human health, environmental impact, respect for human rights, respect for animal rights, and last but not least, socioeconomic advantage, because we want brands and businesses who have sustainable practices to succeed. The purpose of the free Sustainable Life app available on both Apple and Android is to connect you with sustainable brands and businesses worldwide. Use the app to do direct-to-consumer online shopping or for the fun hashtag shop local function through which you can find local retail shops, grocery stores, cafes, restaurants, salons, spas, event venues, eco-hotels, eco-tours, and even eco-service providers like makeup artists, naturopaths, and dog groomers. This app was created to make sustainable living easy for you. Use it at home and while you travel to live a life in line with your core values. And of course, to hashtag shop local. The app is available on both Apple and Android devices. Have a story idea or suggestions for a future guest for our podcast? Visit www.sustainablelifeapp.com to submit an idea or email us at podcast at sustainablelifeapp.com with your guest or show idea suggestions. Just a note that we are a non-judgmental community. It is our belief that no one is perfect, but if we all do our part to consume more sustainably, there will naturally be a positive ripple effect worldwide. Our hope is that the app helps to positively impact your health, the environment, and all living beings. On a legal note, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the guest and do not necessarily reflect that of Mangla Bunsel, Tell Your Story Productions, Inc., and its subsidiaries, affiliates, and associated companies, together with all respective officers, directors, and employees thereof. Thank you. 
for being such an important part of our community. The Love Enlighten Me salutes the Love Enlighten You. See you next time.